Good morning, everyone. Happy Saturday. It is episode three of Unsupervised Leadership. We're sorry we ditched you last weekend. We were really busy and it was really nice out, wasn't it, Court? It was. And we decided to hang out at a pool instead of being here with unsupervised leadership. We know that we have some people that are really upset about that, but sometimes we have to take care of ourselves, don't we? That's right. Amen. Perfectly. We don't, we did slightly feel bad, but then we were like, this is the last day we're going to be able to get a tan. And we talked about all the things we need to talk about this season. So it was like a work sesh in the pool. (laughs) It was, it was a work session for sure. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you, we are we are back with season two. We've really had a lot going on, which I've been excited about. And I'm sure that everyone is wondering, first and foremost, what we are drinking today. It's not something that we've had before, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's not. We picked it up on a whim. We thought it might be good. Mm-hmm. So wine from Cooper's Hawk, and the label said, just what did it say? <laughs> I knew she, like, listen, just I'm gonna open this. Or just because, um, tell them exactly what it is. Okay, what it is. It's called In Case of Just Because by Robin Blair, and it is a spritzy rose wine from Cooper's Hawk. That's what it is. Yep, it is from Cooper's Hawk. It's kind of giving like a white Zinfandel vibe from the box in like 1995, <laughs> but we're okay with it. We don't hate it. And we are not drinking beer, so we're feeling really great about that. We don't hate it. We know that we do love Cooper's Hawk, and this is something different and new from Cooper's Hawk. And we've even had people that have been going to Cooper's Hawk, taking a picture of what they're drinking and sending it to us. So, you know, this is this is the type of legacy that we're living right now. It's really great. I think people would like to know what kind of alcohol is out there that is good for them. And I think we're doing a really great job of that. Yeah. We're doing a super great job of that. I will tell you, I'm getting a lot of messages right now about the would you rathers. I just need you to know that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're happy with yourself because listen, everyone should know by now that when Courtney shows up to work, she means business. (laughs) So she's not (laughs) going to go to the bathroom, even if she has to. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally true. And also, this is a shout out to Adam Welcome. So as you know, we we believe that we are going to become professional podcasters. As you know, Ashley Stone is now our own personal promoter and coach of the things that we want to do with our lives. And we want to be these professional podcasters. But Adam, you convinced us it was a really great idea to have our own personal microphone. So we had mm-hmm. total setups. But today... Because we are going a little bit rogue, we decided we're going to record on just one computer at the same time. And we tested it and we felt like the audio quality is better. It was okay. Yeah, it's better. I think it's better because we can actually sit next to each other and have a real conversation before it was like, I need to go hide in another room. (laughs) I know. Converting things into different spaces where we can have privacy and all of these podcasting technical things, but Hey, here we are. And I'm just excited about it. And we, we really have, we're sorry that we weren't here last week, but this is awesome because we have just finalized our annual superintendent conference in Illinois, which is always amazing. We love all of these superintendents in Illinois and every educator in Illinois and across our country, but 
We have been hiding this particular episode because we recorded our special guest several weeks ago, but we didn't want to unveil this until we had an opportunity to hear him at the annual conference. So Kate, what do you think about our guest today? You guys are going to love him. He is an author. He's got a movie coming out. He has an incredible life story. Courtney's right. We did interview him. I stalked him. Yep. Um, <laughs> Who don't you stalk? Yeah. To get this date on the calendar. So we did this a while ago, but because he was at the IASA fall conference for superintendents, we decided to air it after, which is great. Well, he is a keynote speaker, a best-selling author, a motivational speaker. He knows John Gordon. This guy knows a lot of people. He has an incredible story and he is the author of The Coffee Bean, which he's going to talk about today. And we have Damon West with us later today. And we're super, super excited about that. Right. But before we get to Damon, we have to talk about some things. Okay. Because that's what we do. This is like our live vent session about the world. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about millennial superintendents. Isn't that right, Courtney? Yeah. What is a millennial in your opinion? I'm just curious. So the actual definition, in case anyone is wondering, is somebody born from 1980 to 2000. Really? I didn't know that. I missed the millennials just by a couple of years. You did, but you're like a millennial. So it's the same. I think it's fine. <laughs> okay, that's but fine. that's the definition of a millennial. And hmm. so... Recently on Twitter, I shouldn't say recently, last spring, we had an author write an article about why millennial superintendents are the next big thing, because baby boomers are now retiring, people are moving on with their lives, and they suggested that millennials have some different traits that make school districts more successful. Isn't that right, Courtney? Yes, and I'm wondering from your vantage point, what you believe some of those things are. And do you think that that's the next idea of the superintendency in your opinion? I know that you're going back right now to become a superintendent. You're taking your courses and I've been a superintendent. I'm just curious to hear what you think about the millennial superintendent and what this guy had to say about it. Well, I think two things. Number one, I think his article was really, really good. And we'll link it on Twitter later. Um, number two, I also think he's not an idiot. And pretty soon when everyone retires, the only people that can move into superintendency <laughs> is the millennials. So I'm often aware of that too. But they say that millennials, because of the trajectory of their life, so they're born in 1980 through 2000. They talk a lot about how in the 1990s, the economy was booming, people were making money, tech just came out. And then we all know about what happened in early 2000s with the market crash. And then it went back up and now it's going back down. So that percentage of people is used to uncertainty and not mm. a lot of stability, which makes them flexible with changes. So when things happen, they're less frozen and more willing to act because it's just an innate quality that they've had for the past couple of years, which I do agree with. Yeah, but I will say this. I think millennials get a bad rap in I, a lot of yes. places, don't you? No, they do. People think that they're lazy or that they don't want to work, or that they want participation trophies. That's something I hear all the time. And they actually talked about that in the article. And they say that that is, obviously, you could say that about any group of people, right? I want a participation trophy. Yeah, like, I'm here, so give me a trophy. However, person. I think that the people that I've met, and I hate to be, like, biased, because I, I am a millennial, I feel like it doesn't matter if you're a millennial or not. It depends on your work ethic. Work ethic's everything. Yes. like. 
if you care that your name is attached to something, then you want it to be the best it can possibly be. And that's not something you can teach somebody. That's just an innate characteristic a human has, whether they're a millennial or not. Yeah, you're right about that. Work ethic is so critically important. And it makes me think about my dad. I remember during his eulogy, I was talking about his work ethic and he certainly was not a millennial, but when I look at you, you're a millennial and you have an incredible work ethic. In fact, I said to you, you need to stop. You cannot be at work until seven, eight o'clock, all of that. But I do think that the work-life blend balance is a struggle for everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a millennial. But I think that we should talk a little bit more about this article. And you know what I love is they say millennials have a better work-life balance, which I do mm. agree with because I, I have found, and this is my own, this is nothing research-driven. It's just what I think. My mom's age group of people, which my mom is in her sixties. My mom was always raised that like you get one job and you stay there because stability and knowing where you're at is so much more important than venturing out or taking a chance or maybe going through an uncertainty at some point in time. So my mom will tell me all the time, I stayed in the same job for 30 plus years. I love it. Sometimes I hate it other times, but I've never given myself the experience to grow and leave. Millennials enjoy stability because we have not had it for very long. But if we're not happy, I would say at least 50% of them will leave my friends and other jobs, whether it's education or not, if they're like, I'm not happy, I have the technology to go see what other salaries are, what other people will pay me. I can network easier. I will go. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just different than what some baby boomers are used to, where some people will say they will stay because they're here and they like it and they're used to it. I don't think all millennials are like that. I think Gen Z, which is some of our younger people coming into education right now, like teachers, they're more apt to being like, this doesn't make my heart happy. So I'm going, <laughs> which makes it mm -hmm. even more important to be a boss or a leader. And I hate you saying a boss because there's a difference between a boss and a leader. But as a leader, you need to know that about your people. Like you should lift them up, appreciate them, make an even bigger effort to connect with them because they're not going to stay like some of the baby boomers or 50% of the millennials. They're going to say, peace out. I'm not happy with this. And I can go do something else somewhere else because I have all the technology and ability to move on with or without you, which is scary for people, I think. Yeah. I'm hearing you talk about that. My mind is spinning right now because I'm thinking about all the people that I've just been around. And I think about my mom, Loretta, mm -hmm. uh, who's 80. And I think that she also had an incredible work ethic. We're not talking about her age. She's going to be mad yeah, about this. Yeah. So is Denise. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. But we always have to give a shout out to Denise and Loretta, but I was raised that you should work really, really hard. And I don't know. I think millennials are getting a bad rap that they don't necessarily work hard because they're jumping ship. I also think that administratively, when we've looked at resumes, I think that stability and loyalty mm. has been very prevalent as we work as we look at different resumes, when we're deciding, do I want to talk to that person or not? And if you're a job hopper in the past, I can tell you if people were job hoppers as a superintendent, I would say, forget it because they're going to get here and they're going to leave. Maybe now when I think about that, I think as we shift and start thinking about the workforce, what can we do as an organization to make mm -hmm. sure that people stay? Yeah. How do we make things attractive instead of automatically assuming, well, that person's a job hopper, so we shouldn't even talk to that person. That's what, when I hear you saying this, that's what I'm thinking about right now. 
because I would much rather hire somebody that knows themselves well enough to know that when they come to work, they're happy and they're going to give it their all than somebody who's going to say, I'll work for you for 20 years, but I hate my job. And I'm going to complain about my salary every day. Mm. Like I'd rather take a chance on somebody <laughs> that reach. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's true. And so that's a difference of opinion. Like that's where I, I really don't care that they've moved around a lot. If I meet them and I'm like, yeah, okay. They're, they could do something. They have a certain strength and area I'm looking for. I called a new teacher, one of my new teachers, moms on Friday, because mm. I picked one staff member a week that I think really stood out or did something great for kids. And just like we tell our teachers to call their students' houses, I call my staff's houses and I tell their significant others about what their you know spouse, daughter, whomever did at work. And some people laugh. I love calling the moms because my new teachers are mm. 22. I had a mom, she answered this Friday. She started crying and she said, I just want to say thank you so much because my daughter loves coming to work for you every day. And she hears about her different teachers and other school districts and they hate their jobs and they already are complaining they don't get paid enough. And honestly, she's talented and I know she's talented and she could go anywhere else because I can't offer her anything different in terms of like contractual bargaining with the union or things like that. But what I can offer her is support and saying, hey, if you're not happy here and this isn't what is working for you, then let's find something that does work for you. And Mm. I think people are so afraid to have conversations with people like that because they're more like we need to have. And there is something about retention and turnaround. And I totally understand that, too. But finding the people that will work for you that brings out their best work ethic is something that's not talked about enough. Yeah. And people that you want to work with every day Yeah, that you show up and you're like, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. This is a good time. Every job, I don't care what profession that you are in has issues. Yeah. You can always find the negative piece in anything if you are looking for it, but we work with kids. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Like I I honestly don't care if you work in the kitchen, if you're the bus driver, if you're the superintendent, if you're a para, you're a teacher, you get a chance every day to work with kids. For me personally, that drives me. And if in the end you're driving there thinking, I hate this place, leave. (laughs) Yes. Like, honestly, honestly. Because I got two kids that I'm sending there every day. I hope that every Mm -hmm. adult that they interact with, maybe every day you don't like exude this amazing energy, passion, whatever, but in your heart, if it's not there, then you really should go. I agree. You should go. And I think that that is also not talked about. And the last part about this article that I love is talking about communication and feedback. Mm. So millennials in this research, they've said because they've had social media or the ability to connect with so many people at different times, they're more used to getting feedback or immediate messaging about whatever is posted or given. Mm. So the research suggests that when you're working with, let's say a board, if you're a millennial superintendent, you're more apt or used to connecting, reaching out, taking feedback. I don't know if this is true or not, because I'm not a superintendent currently, but this is what this article talks about. The fact that feedback and communication are key and you need to be flexible with the way you get it. That might be a text. It might be a phone call. It might be an email. You might have to understand that a board member has a kid and they're not available until whatever time because they're at work. It's knowing people really, which is why I think you're secretly a millennial at heart, Courtney. I feel like I am. I'm hearing you talk about this and I'm like, I think I'm a millennial. This is great. I know younger than you really are. Oh gosh. Well, I, that's why I get Botox. But honestly, when I hear you talk about that, 
that is how I lived my superintendency. And that is how I feel every day. Like, am I doing a good job? How do I connect with you? What does this look like? And I do think that not everybody's like that. And I think that that's totally fine and okay. But I think understanding the differences of humans, mm-hmm. the workplace, yep. the cultures, the organizational health that is there, regardless of what position that you hold in education. I do think that that really does matter because I used to constantly connect with my board of education. How are you? What's going on? What's on your mind? What do we need? Here's the agenda. Here's what's coming up. How do you feel about that? And I would individually connect and it took a ridiculous amount of time, but it served me really well in the role. Mm -hmm. But I felt like not, not only did I think that they needed that, but that's who I was in that moment. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it worked for me at the time. Yeah. It's the right fit. That was the right fit. fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people ignore that. And that's the thing. People will take opportunities because they're an opportunity and it's not a right fit. And that goes back to, again, what they talked about being a millennial superintendent, knowing that it's okay to leave if this isn't what's working for you and finding something that does. Mm -hmm. And that you might look like a job hopper on paper and you might need to be able to connect with them someplace else without just giving your resume. But Courtney, you taught me when I was a principal, you said you pull in everybody, whether they've submitted their application or not. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, here I go. I'm going to interview 70 people, but some of the best people I've ever hired didn't have great resumes. Yeah, I did. I had a 27 step hiring process because I was obsessed with, I have watched people be so great on paper. And then you meet them and you think not, you're not a great fit for this organization. But then there have been people that I'm like, I'm paper. I just have some questions, but then you meet them and you're like, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if, if, we looked at your resume or you looked at my resume. Do you think that that really reflects who you are? I don't. I think that those are two different people a lot of times. And the way that we portray ourselves either in person or on paper could be different. And I do think that looking at both matters. I do. And I'm going to tell you something that's probably not popular. I hate looking at resumes. I know it's exhausting. I hate it. And it's not even that it's exhausting, but it's like, everyone's going to put their, it's like, asking somebody list off your best attributes. Like, yes. okay, great. It's like a brag board. I don't care about that. So when I actually go to hire somebody, I look at their social media. I look at their Twitter. I'm far more engaged in those things than I am looking to see if where you worked for the past four years, I can figure that out. And education is small and you can connect with anybody and talk to anybody about a person before you even bring them in, to be honest. It's a new school idea. Yeah. And I also think interviewing for a position really does matter. There's an art and skill to Mm -hmm. interviewing. I was just talking to Dr. Kelly Stewart, shout out to her. One of her graduate, I think they're studying to be superintendents. And she asked me to come in and we were just engaging in this conversation and it was via zoom. And we had a conversation about interviewing and how, when you ask the first question, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sometimes people go on for 20 to 25 minutes answering that one question. And by that point, if it's a screening interview, you're done. We had Mm -hmm. 10 other questions we were trying to get to. And because you took 20 (laughs) minutes telling us about yourself and Kelly said that I remember she said something to the effect of, yeah, that there has been times that in a screening interview that she's had to say, well, our time is up. 
And that was it for that person. And I said to her, I feel like a, a, a total idiot, but here's the thing. I can think back. There's probably times where I did that too, but I try to be more self-aware because I don't think that self-awareness is as prevalent for us as administrators and educators as we think that it is for ourselves. I think that we believe we're self-aware when we're really not. There's a study. It says people are not self-aware. I mean, you think you are. And I think if you surround yourself with the right people that bring up conversations to force you to be self-aware, it's a different story. Yeah. I think that makes things better. But I think the average human, I mean, I probably sucked in my first couple of interviews because you just don't know. I've sucked in many interviews that I've ever had. Quite honestly, I look back and think, I don't even know how I got some of the jobs that I got because then you get (laughs) in your car and you're like, oh my gosh, I, that wasn't just really not great. Yeah. But I do think people just need to be who they are. And I think a lot of people try to portray themselves to be what they think the person that they're interviewing with wants them to be instead of being who they are. I think that for the superintendency, but I think that for every position in education. In fact, I remember one time, I don't think I told you this one time I was interviewing a teacher and that I always had the principals bring in three finalists and the principals are like, why can't I just bring you my top candidate? And I'm like, because it's not that I don't trust you. I just think we need to take a look and you need to sit with me. Yeah, and, you're like, and they're I'm like, to bring in 500 people. That's why. totally. And this candidate was talking about how you should never smile until November. Okay. First year teacher. And this was the principal's top choice and everything else that this candidate said, I was like, spot on like amazing, amazing, amazing. So the candidate leaves and I look at the principal. I'm like, I have a problem with that. I can't live with that. We don't, well, I think that's just maybe like what this candidate had been told from either a cooperating teacher or the college. I said, I can't live with that. We smile on day one. We are kind. We are generous. We are all of those things. And so I brought the candidate back in and I said, you said this, and I cannot hire you if, you're not gonna smile. <laughs> if this is what you really believe. And the candidate was really great. And she said that that was someone that she had worked with oh, and they had kind of, you know, said that that was a thing and she didn't believe that because she didn't portray her like that wasn't who she was. And I said, thank you. And we talked about it and we had such a great conversation. Listen, we hired that teacher, one of the best teachers I've ever seen in the classroom. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we did because, you know, it could have been really easy to just say, nope, not happening because of what you said, but bringing that person back in and letting that person talk a little bit about the why behind what they said changed everything for all of us. And she walked away knowing, Hey, I can smile on day one and be really great and be fine. But that's <laughs> and I'm going like to be successful going to the source and giving them feedback yes. and seeing that's all about the right fit because you can have every single correct quote unquote answer in an interview and you end up in a school with a culture that doesn't align with who you are. And then you end up not happy. And let's talk about culture. So yes. we're not going to do a, would you rather, which I know that we have so many people that are so sad, but here's what I was thinking <laughs> today. I'm going to present you as a current principal and aspiring superintendent. I'm going to provide to you some culture questions that have come our way about different types of individuals in an organization. And I'm going to present if this is the type of person that you're presented with as a principal or a superintendent, 
or a teacher, mm-hmm. how are you going to build an effective culture for that person? Oh, this is like a pop quiz. Okay, great. Okay, Okay. let's do it. All right. So the first is this. Okay. Let's pretend that you have a principal that creates a a really great culture, but isn't necessarily communicating effectively with the staff. So you'll have teachers say, he or she is really super nice, but I don't know what the expectation is. Mm. So if you're the superintendent and you want to better the culture, what do you do? I would immediately talk with the principal, not in a bad way, but just like, let's mm-hmm. talk about how you think you're doing. What is your connection with the staff? What does that look like? I would then say, how do you know if, for example, if you give the staff a directive, tell me what that looks like and what does the follow through look like? Sometimes people just don't know that they're not being clear, right? They're thinking in their head, I plan this. I know what I want my staff to do, but nobody's doing it. Well, why do you think that is? I think the biggest thing is being available to that principal, to give them the time, to ask them the questions, give them some feedback, and then help them work through that. There's nothing wrong with someone saying they need help. I think people are afraid to say, I need help with this. I think I'm doing a good job. I'm finding out that there might not be follow through or that I'm saying one thing and my teachers are doing another. Why do you think that is? I think there is an aura of, I got this, I can figure it out. I don't want your help. I don't need you to think that I need help, but I especially think newer principals or leaders need that. They need that immediate, let's check in, let's talk about this. Why do you think this is going this way? The number one pet peeve I have, and this might just be a Kate thing, but is when there is a clear issue and you can see it from day one. It's like going into a a classroom, a newer classroom with a newer teacher, and they're not having any classroom management. Mm. You're not going to leave the classroom and close the door and say, well, I really wish, you know, 17 of those 20 kids would be in their seat, but she'll figure it out. It's Mm. your job when you see something to say something. And I think being able to articulate things in a kind manner, because you have a relationship with somebody is what it's all about. So going back to that, I would hope I have a relationship with that principal and talk with them. That's what I would do. Okay. I'm going to give you an A plus on that. Long-winded answer. I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. So we just talked about the principalship. Let's talk about teachers. Okay. I am a teacher. I come to you as a principal and I find something negative, unhappy. I'm, I'm unhappy. I, I don't love what's happening. I don't love, maybe I've loved my work before. I don't currently love my work for whatever reason that might be. You're picking up on that. Great. What do you do as a principal? I think you do the same thing. You talk to that person and you don't do it in a reprimanding way. I think you say, Hey, listen, you don't seem happy. What's going on? Most people don't want to have that conversation because then you're going to have to give that person time to explain what's happening to them. Maybe personally, professionally, I think the longer you ignore and hope it gets better, the worse your life will get. And I think that's for both sides of people. I've seen people that are great teachers that have some personal things going on. And same thing with any leader or administrator. When your personal life is a mess, it's going to bleed into your professional life. And if nobody sits down to take the time to talk with you, how is that ever going to get any better? My other thing is I've seen really great teachers teach a grade level and not be successful at it because they can't, you know, they go a grade level lower and personally for them, they need organization and structure. They're not getting it with that younger grade level. So having an honest conversation about helping them is important. I think people need to do that. I think people need to be honest and open and able to have that 
conversation. Okay. So here's my final question Mm -hmm. about culture, organizational health. Great. What do you do when people are talking about other people? It doesn't matter what the position is, but you know that people are talking about other people and it's affecting the organization, department, culture, all of it. What do you do? You call it out. And I don't think you do it in an inappropriate manner. I learned at a very young age, you always go to the source. If a teacher is complaining about another teacher and they come to you, you tell them to go to the other teacher. If a teacher is complaining about something else and you hear them, you talk with them about it. The more you ignore, the bigger problems will get. And I think that that goes across the board with anybody. It goes across the board with teachers, with administrators. I also think that there's sometimes a tolerance for things like that because People don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. They don't want to be put in an awkward situation. They don't have the time at that moment to talk to that person. If you don't follow through, expect that toxicity to spread all over the place. Okay. These are great culture promoters. So, yeah. This is, what did you call this? <laughs> to combat the culture. I like, I like the concept of organizational health and culture. I don't know what it is, but I think it, no, it's a nice word for it. It makes it sound really being healthy. I think that the concept of being healthy and organization matters. So we've okay. talked a little bit about Damon West. We are so excited for him to be here. This is a comeback story that you will absolutely want to hear about. But before we get there, we have to hear from our sparkle sister, our sparkle sister, Dr. Bhavna Sharma Lewis with another amazing sparkle spotlight. Let's go. Hi, this is Bhavna Sharma Lewis with today's sparkle spotlight. As educators, leaders, parents, and children, we always want to please others, often at the sacrifice of our own thoughts and feelings. We are the hardest on ourselves when we don't make people happy or we can't fix their problems. Well, I urge you to stop torturing yourself and focus on these few reminders that will keep you strong and sane. You cannot change the past. Others' opinions do not define your reality. Positive thoughts create positive actions. Overthinking and admiring the problem will not solve the problem. You cannot make everyone happy. So note to self, don't measure your progress with someone else's ruler. You can only change you. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is your future. Today is your life. Go live your best life yet. Cheers and sparkle on. Well, here we are. I Every season, I always say that we've hit it big. But Kate, we've officially hit it big with the guests that we have today. And I'm going to compliment you for being the ultimate stalker to get you scheduled on our podcast. Let's be honest. I am. We're really excited about this guest speaker we have on today. I did um, shamelessly stalk him to make sure we can get him on the podcast because we know you're all going to love him and we can't wait for him to share his story with all of you. Well, we have none other than Damon West with us today, and we are thrilled that you're here. Damon, welcome to Unsupervised Leadership. Courtney, Kate, thanks for having me. And Kate was not stalking me. I was not stalking because it wasn't creepy and Kate's a nice person. So it's like, you know, it's not, it wasn't weird or anything like that. But I mean, like she had like your instructions, I think were do not let him leave without getting a date locked down. And that was good because my schedule is so crazy that we had to get a date locked down. And I was in that room one time to get it done. Yeah. Well, she got it done. So compliments to her and 
to you. So Damon, there are so many people listening to our podcast that probably have either read your books, heard your story, but then there's people that are listening that are like, I've heard of Damon West. How do I know Damon West? Can you just very briefly tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah. You know, so I guess the best place to start the story is probably in the beginning, because we're talking about, you know, someone's life and where it began. I grew up in this little Southeast Texas town called Port Arthur, came from a great family, um, had everything in life. I mean, so I'm really like the the guy that had it all. I mean, every advantage, every privilege, every opportunity. But I got into substance abuse at a young age when I was 10, started drinking. When I was 12, I started experimenting with smoking pot, had some character issues, but I could throw a football. And this is Texas, man, Texas. We love our high school football. And I was a stud in football. I was in in high school, a three-year starting quarterback, Division one college scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. But I was injured uh, early on in my football career in college. I was 20 years old when my career and an injury happened. And then after that, I got into more hardcore drugs to deal with the loss of my identity, really. I mean, because my identity was wrapped up in being a football player. And uh, I started experimenting with cocaine, ecstasy pills. And and I say experimenting because I'm really in the early stages of, of the disease of addiction, because that's what I am. I'm an addict. Today, I'm in a program recovery, but I have this addiction that I had to live with. And, but uh, I was a functional addict, graduated college, went on to work some really neat jobs. I worked in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president. I worked on Wall Street. It was at that job as a Wall Street broker in 2004, living in Dallas, Texas, that I was introduced to meth for the first time. And with the introduction of meth, I was instantly hooked. It took about 18 months for me to lose everything, living on the streets of Dallas. And then I, then I became a criminal to fund my addiction. And um, these crimes that I committed uh, went on for about three years. They called them the Uptown Burglaries for the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas, where I once lived, and I was now burglarizing people's homes. And and look, there's no way to sugarcoat this. I was a bad guy. I broke into people's homes. I stole their property. I stole their sense of security. But after three years of committing property crimes against the people of Dallas, the Dallas SWAT team put an end to the Uptown Burglaries on July 30th, 2008. One year later, approximately, I went to trial, May 18th, 2009, and a jury in Dallas sentenced me to life in prison. And that's kind of where my story picks up with what we're here to talk about today, the story of the coffee bean. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is an incredible story if you think about it. And we want to dive deep into that. Kate, what are you thinking? You know, it's funny because I've heard Damon tell his story twice now. And every time I'm like, I come back and I try and retell the story to people, like the story of the coffee bean, (laughs) like, what is it? What does that mean? So for those people that have not read your story or not heard about your book in brief, like, how did you come up with the coffee bean? How did that help you in prison and get you where you are today to tell your story? Yeah. So right after the trial was over in 2009, my mom and my dad made me promise that I won't get into one of these white hate groups, these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs. And um, my mom actually makes me promise no gangs and no tattoos. And I don't, I don't know how I'm going to follow through on this promise to my mom, but I run into this guy, this older black man in Dallas County jail that was locked up with me named Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson shared with me the story of the coffee bean. And he said to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, you have three choices of how to respond to the pot of boiling water. You can be like the carrot that turns soft or the egg that turns hard. Carrots are sad people. Eggs are mad people. And the reality is you're going to be the carrot and the egg sometimes because 
being sad and being mad is a natural human emotion. But he said the third choice is to be like the coffee bean because the coffee bean changes the pot of warm water into a pot of coffee. It is the only thing he said that changed the water. Everything else was, was changed by the water. It is the change agent. So he said, if you want to come back as someone your parents recognize, you have to be a coffee bean. Be a coffee bean. These four words changed my life because that told me that the power was inside me. And if the power is inside me, it didn't matter where I went into, no matter what adversity I faced in life, I wouldn't just survive. I would thrive if the power was inside me. And y'all, I mean, I got my chance to find out. I mean, prison was the hardest, most dangerous thing I've ever been through in my life. It was the biggest pot of boiling water most people can ever fear going into. And I say that because I talk to people all over the world. And people tell me their biggest fear in life is to go to prison. And there's a reason why prison is a very scary, very dangerous place. And it was hard. Prison was, there's no way to sugarcoat that either. Prison was tough. I mean, it's, uh, it was a baptism by fire. I spent the first 10 months of prison, of the first two months of prison, sorry. I spent the first two months fighting off the gangs. First, it was the white gangs. Then it was the black gangs. Because everything in prison was about race. That's the way the inmates wanted it. You're expected to go with your own race. But again, my mother's made me promise that I won't get into one of these racial gangs. So after two months of constant fighting, the violence was finally over and the threat to my physical safety was gone. And now I got a chance to work on myself on the inside. I had to figure out how to become a coffee bean. And that was really the journey that I went on for the next several years inside of a maximum security prison. But the transformation was so complete, Kate, that at the end of my prison sentence, seven years had come up and seven years was the mark where I can, I was eligible for parole because again, my crimes were not aggravated, meaning that no one was ever home. I never saw my victims. They never saw me. No weapons were ever used and no one was physically hurt. So when you have a crime like that, where there's no physical victim, they look at your time differently. And I was eligible for parole in 2015, went for my parole interview. Um, and you know, I guess I did really well because they let me go. November 16th, 2015, you know, I walked out of prison and I tell people all the time, not necessarily a free man because I've got a little bit more time left on supervised release. I'm on parole until the year 2073 in the state of Texas. 2073, 51 more years I went on parole, but it doesn't matter about parole because I'm a coffee bean. And the only way this coffee bean goes to prison is when I go to prison all over America to share the story with the men and women in there, to bring them hope on their journey. Just like I try to bring hope to all these educators around the country. We loved it. Yeah, and so one of the biggest questions that Kate has been asked and that I get asked is, do you still talk to Mr. Jackson? Man, good story about this. And this is happening in real time. I can't find Mr. Jackson. Well, I couldn't, I did. I found it now. So okay. I call him Mr. Jackson for the sake of the story. The only name I knew him by was Muhammad. He, he was a Muslim guy. So he went by the name Muhammad. And um, so I don't have his real name. I just call him Mr. Jackson for the sake of the story. I mean, I, I start out telling my story in the South, you know. And um, so I didn't want to go around telling people Muhammad told me this and Muhammad told me that. I thought maybe nobody would listen to me if I used his name. So called him Mr. Jackson. When I got out of prison, I go try to find Muhammad, Mr. Jackson, and Dallas County Jail is telling me we need a name, we need a birthday, we need some kind of vital information. So I keep searching for this guy, can't find him. I don't even know his real name. There's a newspaper in the Texas prison called The Echo. The Echo, all 125,000 people in prison every couple of months, they get a real physical newspaper that's made by inmates. 
And for for three years now, I've been writing an article in the in the prison newspaper. It's one of the things I enjoy doing the most. The article is called "The Coffee Bean." And inside that article, every time I get a chance, I talk about Mr. Jackson, where I heard the story from, the story of the coffee bean. And I have my P.O. box in there for the inmates to write me. And I keep hoping that, well, by the unfortunate circumstance that he's still in prison or in prison, he'll find me and write me or someone that knows him will. A few months ago, I got a letter. It was a letter that had no return address. It didn't say who it was from. All it said Find James Lynn Baker and you find your Mr. Jackson. Oh. That's it. So I've got a name. Call a friend of mine in Dallas. It's a lawyer. Get a private investigator on. This private investigator is a really neat guy. He's from Scotland Yard. He lives in America now. So got the full British accent and everything, right? So he's running around knocking on doors, trying to find Mr. Jackson. Will we finally find Mr. Jackson? But first we find his criminal record. His criminal record matched the stuff he told me about him. I didn't know a whole lot about him, just that he had been in and out of prison all of his life. Criminal record match, right? His age matched about the age that the guy would be. Right now, he would be 72 years old. So that's about the same age. The the age that I met him 13 years ago is about where it falls with that. I figured I had him in his 60s, you know, but he was, I guess, what, 59, uh, doing the math on it. So, and, and I look at his criminal record, and it has him in Dallas County Jail, in 2009, the same time when I met him in Dallas County Jail. So I know this has got to be the guy, but we can't find him. And it turns out he's dead. He died. December 27th, 2019, James Lynn Baker left this earth. And I don't know how he died or what, but he has some family members that are left behind. So then I shifted the private investigator to go find the family members. Let me know about them. Let's figure out who they are. Because I want to get in touch with them. I want to tell them that no matter what your brother, because I found the sisters of this guy. And I, you know, I want to tell them no matter what your brother did in his life, no matter what his circumstances were, the choices he made, he impacted one person that is now impacting the entire planet. You know, and to think about that, that everybody in life wants to impact one person. We're talking to a, a bunch of educators on this podcast, right? We're all looking for that one person to impact and change your life. And, and he did. He impacted one person, me. And now, because of the, the position position I'm in, I get to impact thousands, millions of other people. And um, I want them to know that. So I found his sisters. Um, his sisters, one of them was, there were seven girls, that seven women that started the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders in 1972. Seven women were the first Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. His sister was one of them. Wow. wow. Yes. And a few years later, his other sister became a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, too. This guy had the only probably the only person ever that had two sisters that were Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders at the same time. His mother operated the first black owned daycare, permitted daycare in the city of Dallas. She was a revolutionary. She was the first black. She was a single mom too, raising like four or five kids. But she had a daycare that she ran out of her home. Black first black licensed and owned daycare in Dallas. And what's crazy about the Dallas Cowboy angle is like Dak Prescott is my partner in the movie deal to turn my life into a limited series. Dak Prescott's the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. This is like crazy. Like you couldn't write this kind of stuff. And um. It was just, it's really neat. I was just talking to the private investigator about an hour before I talked to y'all. And he said, so I've talked to one of the sisters, told them that um, I represent a person that, you know, was really impacted by their late brother and that he wanted to get in touch with them. And um, 
So the sisters are are hesitant. They're like, well, I don't know. You know, my brother, you know, their brother was into a lot of bad stuff. He was a criminal, a career criminal. But uh, he's like, Damon, they want to know who you are. Can I go ahead and reveal who you are? And so, yeah, I sent them some stuff to send to the family. So now I'm waiting to hear if the family wants to meet me. And I can sit down with these two sisters and they're who are in their late 60s, early 70s and tell them about their brother, their brother who no matter what he may have done in his life, he impacted one life that has been able to take that story and just impact an entire planet. So really cool. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you found him. Probably a lot more than you were thinking you were going to get when you asked the simple question. Have you found Mr. Jackson? You know, it's funny because <laughs> my staff was like, can you ask him if he knows where Mr. Jackson is? It's like the yeah, number everybody. one thing people want to know. For years, as I've been telling this story, the most frequent question, when I say most frequent, I mean, every single time Q&A, this question comes up and it's always yeah. been, can't find him. And it's been a weird little thing. Like, you know, I mean, how can you not find this guy? But I've tried and tried, but it came from an anonymous letter from an inmate that read my article that hit home because I found my person that led me, that led me to the clue. So the next article I'm writing in the echo, by the way, is about Whoever it was that told me, let me tell you where it went. And I, I'm, I'm hoping the sisters will give me a picture. The only picture I've seen of him is a mugshot. And that's not the picture I want the public. I don't want the world to see a mugshot of James Lynn Baker. I want them to see his smiling face. But interestingly enough, this guy, for years, I've described him as he was always smiling. He always had a smile on his face. And so for years, I've been talking about him smiling in the mugshot. He's smiling. So he was smiling even in his mugshot. So. Wow. Good guy. Okay. This is kind of going rogue, but as you were telling your story, I can't help but thinking, right? Like you're like the pillar of privilege when you're young, you're great at football. You come from a two parent home. They raise you, right? They, you know, you go to church every Sunday, you get into drugs, you make some bad choices. You end up in prison. The day you walked out of prison though, like, right. When you're allowed to leave, did you ever have this immense amount of like, oh my gosh, now I, I like have to go out and do this and tell this story. Like, did you ever have anxiety about it? Or were you like, okay, this is what I meant to do. And this is where I'm going. Uh, yes. Well, yes, a little bit. I did have some anxiety because I'm walking out to a world that look, I mean, I, the world's not just going to be, Hey, welcome back. Damon. I mean, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are like, you got sentenced to life in prison. You must've been a pretty bad guy. So I've got that I've got to go up against. And look, I know that I want to share this story. My favorite teacher growing up, Mr. Jellin, my seventh grade history teacher, reached out to me when I was in prison. It was 2011, September 2nd, 2011 is what the letter date is. But this letter said, you know, Damon, you've been to the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, but you've always been able to bounce back. And I think that you should share your story with young people when you get out because you could bring them hope on their journey. And he said those four words in the letter, I believe in you. I believe in you. The words that you hear from a teacher, you hear from a coach, maybe if you're lucky, you hear from a parent or two parents, if you're lucky like me. So I had this mindset that that was the first seed that planted the little first tree that became this coffee bean movement. That's now like a forest, you know, it's growing. But when I walked out, I knew I wanted to do this. It was very hard okay, because schools wouldn't even let me in at first. I had to have a judge go with me or a law enforcement officer escort me into the school because I just got out of prison and my crimes aren't violent or anything like that, but I'm just this unknown quantity that, and, and look, man, people have a lot of sour opinions about people that have been in prison. And you know what? Some of that is earned. 
I've got companies and my wife and I have companies now that I try to hire people that have, that have been in prison before and, and people mm-hmm. that are looking for a second chance. And look, I get burned a lot. I'm Damon West. I'm, I'm like the, I'm like the concrete hero for all people that have been to prison. You know, I like the person that's, that, that they can look up to and they burn me because yeah. so many people are struggling with addiction. And if you don't get tools to deal with your addiction, then you'll go back out to your addiction. Addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. Normal people, focused people give up their behaviors to meet their goals. The only way that I can work with living with my addiction is to have a program recovery. I try to find people out there that are coming out that have a program recovery because if otherwise I get burned too. So I understand that people have this negative feeling about people that have been incarcerated before. And that's what I had to deal with. I had to deal with a lot of people that had a negative mindset about a guy who's been incarcerated and people didn't want to take a chance. I had to fight to get into schools, but I just kept fighting and I kept showing up and I kept spreading this message that caught on. And here we are today, you know, know, almost seven years since the day I walked out of prison. And and so much has changed since then. I don't have to beg schools anymore to go. Schools will contact me and and, you know, it's just been a wild ride, Kate. I just can't believe, some days I can't even believe this is my life. Right? It's amazing. Yeah, it is. And so when I'm thinking about that, how did you get hooked up with John Gordon? Because like, I mean, how does that even happen? And I watch you on Twitter. I follow your journey. You've been so gracious and kind, not only to me, but like, that's just who you are with everybody that you meet. And then you write this coffee bean book for kids. You signed it, remember, like a year ago and you gave it to me. And my daughter for her, like end of the year, you get to have a guest reader. She chose your book and my son came and read your book. Yeah. And I took a picture and I sent it to you and I'm like, look at this. I mean, you have just had in the last seven years, it's like, such an incredible comeback story too. But how did you meet John Gordon? And is there somebody that you're like, it's super cool that I met this person when I'm going out and speaking? Like who, can you just talk a little bit about those two things? Yeah, no. So John, I met John through Dabo Sweeney and Dabo Sweeney was like the, really the first head coach that brought me in to speak to his, he's the head coach at Clemson, brought me in to speak to his team. And I got done speaking at Clemson. John comes in to speak after me and, and, Dabo brings John into his office and he's like, man, we had this guy speak to our team. Incredible story, John. I've never heard a story like this before. And he's retelling John the story, the coffee bean. Well, John says, hey, give me his number. Do you have his number? So Dabo gives him my number and John calls me up out of the blue. And look, I follow John Gordon. This is the energy bus guy, man. This guy's written, he's stole 5 million books. He's a huge speaker. And I follow John every morning for my inspiration. And it sounds like John's got this little New York accent a little bit. And so it's like, it's John, man. So, hey, Damon, it's John Gordon. And so I'm like, John, man, how do you know who I am? And he's like, Dabo Sweeney. And he said, man, I was just talking to Dabo. And, you know, he said, uh, Dabo told me the story, your story. He said, Damon, the world, this is in 2018. He says, the world needs the coffee bean message. The world needs this message. Let's deliver it to the world. Let's write a book. We'll call it the coffee bean. He said, I've seen the cover of the book in my mind already because I told John when he said, let's write a book. I'm like, John, you're John Gordon. I'm Damon West. I'm nobody. You don't need me. Go write the book yourself. And John is just, man, it's just 
such an amazing guy. John's like, hey, no, you're writing this book with me. We're doing this together. We don't do it at all. So we wrote the book. It became a bestseller overnight. It's in every language in the world. It's got a global publishing contract attached to it, where it's in every language in the world, Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian, German, Vietnamese. All these languages have the coffee bean on their bookshelves. But, um, it you know, it goes back to like Dabo Sweeney introducing us. And like one of the, the neatest people I've met on the road is Dabo Sweeney. I mean, Dabo Sweeney is he's this magical person. I mean, and, and, you know, not everybody gets to meet the guy because he, he's I mean, he's the head coach at Clemson, but he's very easy to talk to. But he's a connector. And I learned so much from watch, watching Dabo connect people to other people. That's what I want to be. I'm a connector. I try to find ways to connect people to other people. There's a great story about that's happening right now, too. So y'all, y'all are catching me at a good time. I wrote this book called The Locker Room recently. And The Locker Room came out in May, became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. But it's about a team that has to deal with one of the players in this football team makes a racial comment. A white guy makes a racial comment after a game. And he fractures the whole team. The team is divided. And the calls to cancel this kid are so loud. And the white head coach doesn't know what to do. And so his friend, the black head coach, has to help him understand what's going on. And, and it talks about racism. The book talks about racism and the cancel culture. And the idea is that if we're going to have conversations in America, we've got to have two things present in our places to have a conversation, humility and grace. And humility is when you're willing to listen to a tough truth. And grace is when you're willing to give something they don't ne- somebody something they don't necessarily deserve. Because grace always costs the person giving it more than it costs the person who receives it. This lady reaches out to me on social media. No lie. You can't make this stuff up. Lady reaches out to me on social media a couple of weeks ago. She says, Damon, the book, The Locker Room, is about my son. The quarterback in your book that makes the racial comment becomes whole again at the end. But my son's story didn't end like that. So she tells me her son's story. Her son, three years ago, when he was 17, he was a, he was in high school. And after a football, he's a really good quarterback, four or five-star quarterback, great quarterback. But after a game one night, he's in the Whataburger parking lot. And, and I don't know if y'all have Whataburgers where you are. Yeah. But Whataburgers are amazing. So this is not a commercial for Whataburger, <laughs> but I can't walk away from not, not mentioning Whataburger and how great they are. So – but they're in the what these two high school kids, one of them's white, the other one's Hispanic. And the white kid, the kid's mother of the mother who's texting me, she says, My son drops the N-word when he's getting ready to fight the other kid. And he says it with an A at the end, not the ER type, which means that he and his friends talk like that. You know, doesn't make it right. I don't condone any use of the N-word in my life, by the way. But he drops the N-word. And it's caught on video, goes out on social media, just like the story in the book, The Locker Room, which is crazy. And the calls to cancel the kid are, are heard. And every school that was recruiting this kid, Alabama, Texas A&M, all of these big-time programs, because he was such a great quarterback, they drop him. He has no scholarship offers after his high school career, in which he's a great high school quarterback. So he goes to junior college for two years and tears it up, does really great. The team loves him. And this summer, he's getting ready to go play for Ole Miss. Ole Miss calls him up and says, hey, we'd like to bring you in. And and so they bring him in, and and he's around the team for one day. And one of the players on the team, another black player that was from his district in Texas, recognizes him, says to the coaches, I don't want to play with a racist quarterback. The coaches from Ole Miss are like, whoa, we miscalculated on that one big time. Sorry, you got to go. You're out of here. So 
the kid has nowhere to go. And the, the mother is like, Damon, can you help me turn my son into the son from your story, the son from the kid from your the kid from your book? And I was like, ma'am, there's nothing I can do for your son because the cancel culture has your son right now. And I said, honestly, there's no white person in America that can help your son right now because the cancel culture has your son. But there is one person in college football that can help your son. And his name is Deion Sanders, mm -hmm. a black head coach at an all black HBCU school can make your son whole again. And Deion Sanders is the only coach at one of these HBCU schools that can do this. And I don't know Deion Sanders, but I'm going to find Deion Sanders for your son. And so it took about three or four days to finally get the contact. It got me in touch with Coach Sanders at Jackson State. And on Saturday, after, you know, the, the call, the message from her Facebook thing was on Tuesday. By Saturday, the son and his dad were sitting in Deion Sanders' office at Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. And Deion Sanders listened to the kid's story. And he told the kid, his name is Bronson McClellan. His name will come up in the media soon. He said, Bronson, he said, I'm sick and tired of seeing a kid become canceled because he made a mistake when he was 17 years old and he has to pay for it for the rest of his life. He said, that's not going to work. That doesn't fly with me. He said, I don't care what you did when you were 17. You've paid a heavier price than you should have had paid for that. So he said, today, I'm uncanceling you. I'm going to rebrand you here at Jackson State and make you whole again. He said, congratulations and welcome to the team. And if anybody has a problem with you playing on my team, they can come see me. He said, anybody in the media has a problem with it, I got something for them too. He said, you're on my team now, son. Welcome to college football. Deion Sanders has uncanceled this kid. Uncanceling. I mean, like, y'all, this is going to be a big story. America's going to see this story, and they're going to realize that, hey, okay, we can uncancel some people finally. Because – Listen, there's a difference between holding someone accountable and holding someone hostage. And right now, the cancel culture in America has gone so far that people are being held hostage for the things they've done. Like you can't come. There's got to be a path forward. That's what the book, The Locker Room, talks about, that a, a mistake doesn't make you a mistake forever. If you're willing to own your mistake, then where is the redemption? How do we find our path forward? And that's what we've got to do. And look, as a white guy, I get to operate a little bit outside the cancel. That's why I was able to write the book, The Locker Room, because in my backstory, I had to fight Nazis. I had to fight skinheads and Crips and Bloods for my right to not join a gang and not be in part of that racial world that's inside that prison and be able to come out and tell this story about being a coffee bean because the coffee bean wants to change the world around. Them. So that's what I get to do. Wow. You're doing it. You're changing yeah. the world around you every, every moment of every single day. You know, I've, I've also watched you speak multiple times. And I know most recently when I heard you talk, you were talking about a program, a foundation that you'd like to get started across the country. And specifically, you spoke to Illinois. Do you want to say anything about that? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Because especially if I've got Illinois educators on this, this, this podcast, here's the deal. I heard a statistic. And it was that less than 2% of the teachers in America are black men. Less than 2% of the teachers in American public education are black men. Now, look, I know the numbers. Black men make up about 6.5% of the entire American population. But black men only make up 2% 2 of our teachers. Something's wrong in America. And how are we having such a hard time recruiting black men to become teachers? 
I read a study from Johns Hopkins that said if a black boy had a black male teacher between second and fifth grade, that boy was 40% more likely to graduate high school and 20% more likely to go to college because he's seen that it can be done. He has the, the role model in front of him to see it can, it can happen. And so I thought to myself, my God, if we have trouble finding black men to become teachers in this country, well, I know a place where there's a lot of black men, prison because we've locked up so many black men in the last two generations with our criminal justice laws that, that let's be honest, there's more than one criminal justice system in this country. There's a white one, there's a black one, there's a brown one, there's a rich one, there's a poor one. And, and I'll tell you this because I'm a criminal justice professor now. I mean, I, I, I went back to school and got a master's after I got out of prison. I, I teach a class called Prisons in America. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Houston downtown. I teach a class called Prisons in America. In fact, today, the first day of class, they just heard that very thing. There's more than one criminal justice system. So here's the deal. If we're having trouble finding black male teachers, I know where there's a lot of black men, prison. So what if I could find a state that would let me go into their prison system and find incarcerated black men that have the right kind of felony to be a teacher? Because every state allows certain felons to be teachers, even the state of Illinois, certain felons. I could be a teacher in your state because my crimes are not aggravated. I didn't hurt anybody. I don't even have any drug charges. So my felonies match up with teacher certification requirements in the state of Illinois. I'm looking for black men with those kind of felonies that have about four years left on their sentence. And so the last four years, my foundation, the Be A Coffee Bean Foundation, will go in. Let's say we get five black men in this pilot program. Pilot program is the key word here. That means it's not something permanent. The state can say, hey, we don't want to do it anymore after that. But I want to find five men in this first cohort for this pilot program, five black men that have the right kind of felony, move them to one prison, and then we'll bring a university from that state. So it would be a university from the state of Illinois, whatever university wants to partner with me to have an online degree program for elementary education for these men. The last four years are in prison. And when these men who have the right kind of qualifications to become a teacher, when they get out of prison, they'll have a bachelor's degree in their hand. I'll meet them at the gate with a used car, a wardrobe to teach in, the first two years of housing taken care of, and the first two years of a student teacher salary, we'll cover that too. These men would then go be elementary school teachers in the most underperforming, at-risk, majority Black elementary schools where the crime rates are the highest in that state. Let these men go into that public education setting and be the coffee bean. Let them be a coffee bean in that pot of boiling water. That's public education. And let's face it, you've got a teacher shortage going on right now in America, in Illinois, that is so extreme, the inner cities is where it's going to be impacted the most. Because teachers in the inner cities now have the option to go teach anywhere else because everybody is poaching on everybody else's teachers. And the inner cities where no one wants to go teach or not, not as many people want to go teach, these men would be happy to go teach in there because guess what? They've lived in a prison. They, they've lived in the worst environment possible. Teaching at an inner city school where crime rates are, that's nothing. That's like going out to the rec yard. It's all good. My guys can do this. I've just got to find a state that will believe in me and allow me to do it. But it's fully funded, y'all. Whoever listens to this, I want to go to the state of Illinois. AIG is my partner in this. AIG is a multi-billion, multinational corporation. They've given me all the money I need to find five guys in this cohort. Well, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it because I've heard you speak about it and you were so passionate about it. And this is certainly a, a platform that we bring people on and we want to give you the opportunity. Speaking of then being on the big stage where Kate and I have both seen you, I know Kate wants to ask you 
something maybe a little bit off that we, we have not spoken about yet, but you know, this podcast is about women in leadership. So we're just going to ask you about women in leadership. So Damon, the reason beyond the fact that you're a great public speaker, you talk a lot about your mom and a lot about your wife and your stepdaughter, which is great. So why do you think, you know, thinking about all you've accomplished in the past seven years, right? You got out of prison, wrote a book, you're speaking, you wrote another book, you got a movie deal and it's kind of all happening at once for you, which is fantastic. Why do you think females are not on the big stage as much to speak as men are? Do you think there's a reason? Do you think people just don't put themselves out there? Um, what is that? Like, what's your opinion on that? Oh, there's a complete double standard in this country. It's, it, it's a extreme double standard because First of all, it is something I noticed whenever I was working at a law firm. And you know, when I worked at this law firm, when I got out of prison, I literally was a paralegal. And the first thing I did, I answered the phones. I mean, and, and I worked with this other paralegal. Her name was Angel. And Angel was wicked smart. She, she could have been a lawyer. She just didn't have a law degree, right? But she was smart, knew everything about the law, all these different cases. But every time, so now that there was, a, there's not a lot of male paralegals, by the way. So I was the oddball that I'm a male paralegal. And in the department that I worked in, the pharmaceutical department, this law firm, I would, my job was to take all the calls from clients that called in, men and women, because men and women that called in did not argue with a male voice on the other end of that phone. It was a wild thing. I didn't believe it when Angel's like, Angel's like, uh, I got a guy working with me now. You're taking all the client calls. And I thought it's just because she just didn't want to talk on the phone. She's like, no. Because you can explain to them one time what it is you want to get through to them. And they say, okay, well, thanks a lot, Mr. West. When she does it, they want to ask her questions because they don't, they don't trust her as being a person in authority. It was wild. I got to watch it happen. And other departments started sending their calls into me like, hey, we got one on the phone. We need Damon to talk to. I don't think women are taken as serious as men in this world, especially the motivational world. And it's a shame because I'm motivated most in my life by my wife. My wife is one of the most dynamic people I've ever met in my life. This woman put herself through nurse practitioner school to get her master's. She became, uh, she was a single mom being a nurse practitioner. I mean, dude, she's a dynamic, hardworking person. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met. But she's told me the same thing too about the double standard that goes on in, in the world. Even in healthcare where she was, that that patients would would argue with a, with a female. I just... It's a, it's a strange phenomenon. I was raised around strong women, so I don't understand where it comes from, but I do believe that it's real and it exists. Okay, Amen. listen. Yeah. How'd you meet your wife? Yeah. Ah, so I was introduced. So she's a nurse practitioner. I have a friend that's a nurse practitioner, and I was working on the malpractice case at that law firm, and I had a motion I had to write, and so I called my nurse practitioner friend, a woman, that it was smarter than I was, and so I called her up, said, hey, I need some language on this, this motion for this judge. She said, well, come on over to Saltgrass. I'm having dinner with some friends from work. And I sat across from Kendall Romero. And, you know, that time we met that night, she was going through a breakup. And I was uh, I was in a place in life. It was four days before I went and spoke to Dabble's team for the first time. Right. So my my focus wasn't there. But there was energy that, that exchanged between us. And so a few months later, I get a, a mess, Facebook Messenger, the same place that, that that kid's mom reached me the other day. I get a message in Facebook Messenger and says, hey, Damon, it's Kendall Romero. I was with you at that dinner where, you, where I met you with Marcy that night. And man, my response was, hey, Kendall, I'm still single. What's up? You know, like I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's 
all the small talk. Let's go. Let's 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 go hang out. And so we were, you know, immediately we started hanging out. By six months later, she introduces me to her daughter, Clara, who's like six years old at the time. So she she made me wait. She wanted to make sure I was going to be around for a while before she introduced me to her daughter. She's a single mom. And uh, she gave me the best advice, Courtney, because she told me, she said, Damon, Clara has an amazing father. She said it didn't work out with Clara's father and I, but he is an amazing dad. He loves his daughter and she loves him so much. So you're not here to try to be, you're not here to audition to be Clara's dad. She said, you concentrate on being a role model for Clara, be a friend, make her a priority and let her come to you. And she said, if you'll do these things, then you and Clara will get along just fine. And she said, also, she is in Clara needs to be reprimanded and she doesn't really, she's a good kid, but she said, if Clara needs to be reprimanded, then I'll do it when she's at my house. And whenever she's at her dad's house, her dad will reprimand her because we are her parents and you're not her parent. So unless her, her life is in danger, come get me. And she said, think about it this way. You get to always be the good guy. So that's what I've done. That's what I did with Clara and Clara became Clara and I, I mean, we're, we're, we're best buds. In fact, I mean, before asking Kendall to marry me, she's like, Hey, you got to get Clara on board if you ever want to get married, you know? So I was asking Clara, we were in the front yard doing a glitter project. And uh, so I was like, Clara, what if I asked mom to marry me and, and became your stepdad? And she was so excited. She's like, Oh my God, Damon, I've been wanting this for so long. She ran in the house and got her mom right then on the <laughs> spot and brought her out there and made me propose to her mom. I don't have a ring or anything, but I caught her on video. It's a really cute video. But I mean, and Clara's my bud, man. And you know, look, my life, Courtney, is on the road a lot. I'm on the road. I mean, like August, I'm on the road 28 to the 31 days of August on the road. Don't even see my family. But I know that Kendall and I, I mean, she understands this is this is life. This is like there's a mission behind it. But Clara, I know, has a male influence in her life that is so great. I mean, her dad is a great guy. And she's getting that from her dad. So I don't have to worry about not being there for my stepdaughter because my stepdaughter has a great father. So Kendall's just been the greatest coach in, in life and everything. Else. And think about this, Courtney. She met me. This is a funny story. She met me when I was just out of prison. I've been out of prison for a couple of years. Uh, I was living in my parents' spare bedroom because, you know, I was on parole, living in my parents' spare bedroom, making a little bit above minimum wage. I mean, if I would have had a Tinder profile, it would have been <laughs> terrible. I mean, like, <laughs> You know, just out of the joint, live with my parents. Yeah, please do me. Job. This guy, you know. Like, but she fell in love with that guy. And now life couldn't be more different than it was when she met me. I mean, like you said, movie deal, book deals. I got publishers calling. When are you writing another book? Um, the impact I'm able to have all the world. That wasn't there when she met me. And she fell in love with me then. So I know that I'm with the right person. Yeah. Good for you. That's well, great. Listen, Kate has been wondering this question and you just brought up your mom and it is perfect timing because she couldn't wait to ask you this. So my favorite part of your story when you public speak, which I don't, I don't think I've ever told you this is when you explain to people in prison that like, I can't get a tattoo because my mom said no, like dead serious. Like my mom made me promise no tattoos, no gangs. Like I'm not into it. And your mom throughout your story has always seemed like such a strong woman. Like, listen, I'm like, I'm giving you to God now. Like you come back a better person or don't come back is basically what you, you said, which is amazing in that sense of like, good for her for, you know, like sticking to that and like also giving you some sort of compass when you're not with her. But 
what is your relationship like with your mom now? And like, what's her influence been? Oh, man, my mom is great. I mean, like I wouldn't, you know, I remind her I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. I mean, she was the glue that held, held the whole family together. Um, we get along really great. Uh, it was, you know, there were times when I lived with my parents and I'm just out of prison. I'm in my 40s living with my parents that it's like, you know, answering to them, you know, what are you doing? Where are you going to be? Stuff like that. It was frustrating, but I, I lived in prison. So, I mean, it was like, hey, I had, you know, I know what the alternative is. But we have a great relationship now. In fact, and, you know, me being married to Kendall with Clara being my stepdaughter, she has a granddaughter. She, I mean, she and she's had three boys and and my brother, my older brother has a boy. So there's always been a bunch of boys. So I have Clara, man. I have I have the thing she wants to hang out with the most, which is her granddaughter. So but it's really good. We live, you know, 10 minutes away from each other. I see her, you know, two or three times a month when I, you know, when I'm in town, I see her try to take her out to eat from time to time. Uh, talk to her on the phone, but we have a great relationship and she has been the rock that held the entire family together. So moms are, moms are special. Women, I think are just capable of more to deal with. My dad was a mess after I got sentenced to life in prison. And when I was in jail, even it was just, you know, he didn't know how to deal with it, but my mom, she can compartmentalize the pain and get the job done. And I think women have always had to do that because, you know, women have, uh, they have the nurturing side where they're raising a, a child and, you know, you can't let distractions in life pull you away from that. That's like a real job. That's a never ending job. So women are special. Yeah. Yes. Your mom's one of my favorite people in your whole story. I love that. I wish you would bring her with when you speak just so we can hang out with her. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't like to get out too much, but yeah, I, I would love to bring her. Yeah. Is she blown away by the success that you've had and all the things that are happening to you. Yeah. Yeah. My, both my parents are, I mean, and that's, yeah. it's cool. I'm glad I'm glad they got to see the the, the version of, of me that that they wanted to see that they raised. Um, you know, like in the same sense that I'm glad that Kendall and Clara have never seen me messed up on drugs or alcohol. They'll never see that. As long as I keep living my program recovery, they'll never have to meet that person. And I'm grateful also that my parents, I lived in Dallas. They lived in Port Arthur. They were six hours away during all this drug addiction and crime spree that went on. So they didn't have to see the daily, the day-to-day deterioration of someone they loved. And I think that's a real good thing because, you know, I saw a lot in that world. And it's like everybody comes from a family. Every person you meet is someone's child, someone's sister, someone's brother, you know. But, yeah, it, they're blown away by it. And it, it feels good to make them happy. Little story about that. So when John and I wrote The Coffee Bean, back up, when I went to trial, my parents got me lawyers. They got me two lawyers. And because they wanted to help me out, even though I was guilty of everything, they loved me. And they they cashed in a lot of their retirement to give me two lawyers. It cost them $50,000 to get my lawyers, right? And when John and I wrote the coffee bean, my half of the advance was $50,000 because John got 50 and I got 50 from the publisher for writing the coffee bean. So I took my $50,000 to their house and uh, just, I said, hey, y'all gonna be home? So I just went over there, didn't tell them why. But I gave them the check for everything they had done and said, here's your money back. And they were like, wow, they were floored. They were like, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, I told you I'd pay you back. They're like, yeah, we didn't think it was going to ever happen. But yeah, <laughs> so, but wow, it. you're you know yeah. what your mom is? Your mom's an F4 leader. Yeah, she is. Fun, fabulous, fierce female. Damon, there you Lee. Go. yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. Who are some of your favorite? F4 leaders in your world? 
So, of course, my mom, my wife, there's a woman named Lucy Fato, and she is the vice president of AIG. She's a chief counsel for AIG. So she's a top lawyer for this multinational corporation worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And Lucy, Lucy found me on LinkedIn. She messaged me one day. I get a message from the vice president of AIG. He says, hey, you know, I saw your profile. Uh, she's in a criminal justice reform. They've got a pro bono division, this, which is what funds Mr. Coffee Bean. Lucy Fato is someone I've learned so much from in the couple of years that I've known her. This woman does not do well with defeat, does not take no for an answer, meaning that you, you know, no is not the appropriate answer to bring to this person. You bring, you got to bring her a yes, and you got to figure out a way to get to that yes. They invite, she invited me to speak to AIG in, in London. She wanted me to speak to their London offices in AIG. And, um, she wanted me to also speak to Parliament, to the House of Lords. Because back in May, she told me about this. It's like, that sounds great. I would love to go, but I can't go to the United Kingdom. I'm a felon. They don't allow felons into the United Kingdom. She said, that's not true. It's like, Lucy, this is true. This is the government. They, they don't allow. She's like, I, she's like, you know what, Damon? Go apply for your visa. Let them turn you down, and, and I'll take over from there. So I did. I applied for the visa within one hour. I got shot down. The United Kingdom said, that, no, not never. You'll... They, they don't allow anybody that's got more than one year of a felony conviction to come inside their borders. And we don't allow their felons, by the way. We don't exchange felons with the United Kingdom. They said, no, you'll never come. you got 65 years. We don't allow one year. Lucy took it. They went and did, I don't know what AIG went and did, to be honest with you. But about a month before the trip in July, I get an email from the home office, the UK home office, which is like Homeland Security, one of the top people there, emails me and says, Mr. West, we are going to reconsider your application and we're going to change our answer to yes. We're going to allow you into the United wow. Kingdom, send us your passport so we can pre-stamp it so you can get through Heathrow Airport. So I had to send my passport in the mail to the UK consulate in New York. And it came back with this courier and it had a special gold stamp. It says leave to enter outside the rules. So I got to take my wife and my stepdaughter on a European vacation this summer. And this is like existential because if, you know, if Lucy can't pull this off, it's no forever. I mean, I'll never get to go with my family to London and, and the United Kingdom, but we did. We got to go on this European vacation, and AIG brought me out there. Lucy, she never wavered, never had a doubt in her mind that this was going to get done. Another woman that's really impressive to me is my best friend growing up, Danielle Delgadillo. Danielle's a lobbyist in, in Austin. Uh, in fact, on the page two, I think, of The Change Agent, I talk about Danielle. She was one of my character witnesses for my trial. And I mean, she came, I mean, she just, she's been my friend since childhood. She's been a rock in my life. And she's just this determined woman. And she's just, you know, you see her by day, she's this high powered lobbyist. And it's just, you know, how did she get there? I mean, she just fought and clawed her way to the top of what she's done. Just really remarkable person. And so, yeah, I've got a lot of really like strong women that have been around me. I mean, but, you know, I, I like I said, uh, women are, are better at getting some jobs done than men. So yeah, like Kate getting you scheduled on this podcast. He was Listen. not, she was not stopping that day. She was like maneuvering around the gym. I was like, I'm going to follow you. I was going to say, I could have been your private investigator if you really needed me to. That's my second yes. job. It is. <laughs> She's real good. She is so good at that. Damon, we cannot thank you enough for yeah. taking the time out of your crazy, chaotic schedule. We will continue to follow you on Twitter and uh, see all of your journey. You've been so kind, so gracious. Love the work that you're doing with kids as well. And uh, Kate, go ahead and, and take us out, please. 
Listen, like Courtney said, I can't personally wait to see what happens with your initiative, you know, with schools and teachers, because that'll be interesting to see, because I could see that being very beneficial for some schools out there right now. So we're excited to see that too. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, congratulations, you were able to listen to the Damon West. He is officially a guest on Unsupervised Leadership. And don't forget, if you don't have a seat at the table, you can always sit with us.